for Christ, and we're missionaries in Albania. We've been there for 10 years, almost. Um, and if you don't know anything about Albania, it's a really small country in southeastern Europe. And I now pastor a church there, which we, we helped began a long time ago. Uh, we have a dear congregation of Albanians who are growing in the Lord. It's a small church. There's probably 50 to 80 people on a Sunday. Uh, many people are young in the faith. And so with that come a ton of challenges. Um, and as I read through, you know, the book of Acts, I just think, uh, you know, Paul was planting churches like a machine. Like he just went boom, boom, boom. And everywhere he went, he's raising up elders. I mean, it's just elder factory. <laughs> and there was an advantage that Paul had at that time that we don't. And he, he, he went always first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And what I think is, man, at least the Jews just knew the scriptures, right? Every person in our church, every person but three, have never been to another church in their life. They were not raised in church. Their parents didn't teach them about Christ. They've never tried other churches out. This is all they know. And before they were saved, most had never seen a Bible. Most had never been to church. They didn't even know what church was, to be honest. I remember the first day we had a Sunday service. It was a big deal. We uh, got this room ready. We had it all decorated. We had speakers and projector. You know, it looked like church. And it was a big uh, or- time of organizing and inviting people. And, and a lot of people came. There's probably 200 people there. And I remember walking out and seeing people after the Sunday. And I was saying, are you coming to church again on Sunday? And they said, you, you guys do this every week? They, hadn't, they didn't know we do church every Sunday. That's how foreign church is in Albania. You see, in Albania, less than half a percent of people know Christ in the whole country. They are an unreached nation. Many unreached nations exist today, and that's a huge problem, isn't it? But God called my wife and I to be missionaries in Albania. Albania is wild. Wild. (laughs) It's corrupt. It's a post-communist Islamic country with a huge need for Christ. And we've been sent by a few churches to help plant and now establish a church in a city of Pogradets. That's how you say that word, Pogradets, polka dots, okay? <laughs> a small church in a small city in a small country. Now, I have to say up front, my family and I in the last two and a half years have not been to the States Uh, And that is because we have been in the midst of some great challenges. We have had a really, really hard couple of years. Extreme trials, extreme challenges and adversity. We've been told we must leave the country. We've been told we were in danger. We've been told uh, to be, we've been removed from our church. We've been publicly accused and slandered, and we've been told it's over. I mean, I've been on the phone with pastors who say, We're sorry, Corey, this is over. And yet, God, in the most obvious way, brought righteousness to corruption and justice to evil men and vindication to the accused. And it's been wild. When when people say, how's Albania? That's my answer. It's wild out there. And I want to be honest and say, we've struggled. There have been really hard days. Days are where we ask, God, why would you allow this? which is really asking, 
Is God good? Isn't it? Days where we say, why isn't our obedience working? We're being faithful, and it's just making it harder. And that's, that, that's really asking, is the Bible true? We've wrestled. So I stand before you this morning after very humbling times. But standing upon a great truth, which has brought us through a season of suffering. So we stay in Albania, despite challenges, because we believe in the victory of Christ. And we have been sent And now this church is being a part of that ministry with us because you believe in the victory of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, thank you that Christ is victorious. All of this work, all of this uh, longing and desire to have relationship with you is because Jesus is victorious. And we stand on that great truth this morning. Give us great hearts and minds that are ready to learn and to be encouraged and to see what you would have us see in your word today. Amen. Jesus is victorious. That is what God's word says. So let's open to the book that makes that so clear to us, the book of Ephesians. And we'll see this theme of Christ's victory, and then we're going to land in our passage for today. Christ is victorious. I think that's a big theme in Ephesians. He's victorious over sin over death, over this world, over Satan and his demons. And I just said the word over, over and over. And that means he is overhead. He's above. He's top. He is superior. His victory puts him above his enemies. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays for the saints in Ephesus that they would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Look at 1 Verse 20, Christ, who worked, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's not just above, but Paul says he's far above. And that doesn't mean far in space, but rather he is far in position. He's over and clearly over every single power. Not only in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. Not only some persons, but every name that is named. And not only at this moment when he rose, not only at the moment when he rose from the dead, but in every age. He is not over, not only over all things, but all things are also subject to him. He rules all. All things are under his feet. He's seated, the victorious Savior and King. Sits with authority. Now, you have nothing under your feet, right? You have shoes and probably layers of different flooring, and then you have God's earth. That's it. But Jesus has everything all things under his feet. What a victory. And I would say that's a cosmic victory. You like that word? Cosmic victory? I love it. It's a word which points to all reality, to the whole universe. What we can see and what we can't see. His victory is beyond earth, right? 
His victory is beyond this world. It's beyond this universe. It's beyond this realm. It's what Ephesians calls the heavenlies. His victory extends to the physical and spiritual realms. So if the universe has no end, his victory has no end. It stretches all the way from the empty tomb to the cosmos, into the galaxy. It extends up to and is celebrated in heaven and it extends down and the gates of hell cannot prevail. It's also the biggest word I could think of. So the victory of Christ is cosmic. It is a victory that completes and fills all in all. Now, I love victories. Victories that are close, right? Close calls are addicting. When there's, you know, fire and smoke and explosions, boom! And the dust settles and the heroes look at each other and they say, that was close. That's every single Marvel movie, right? <laughs> every time. They've made a thousand of those and they all end the same. All the guys, and I'll watch every single one of them. I don't know why. I love a close call. I love a close victory. But better is a cosmic victory. And the victory of Christ was not close. Jesus didn't rise from the dead and turn to the disciples and say, that was close, right? It was never a close call. Rather, it was the cosmic plan of redemption, which God had been revealing before time. The victory of Christ was always the plan, always. And it was always certain. That's Ephesians 1. The cosmic victory of Christ was certain. We just didn't know it, right? And that's what Paul calls a mystery. Open your Bibles to chapter 3 of Ephesians. And as you find it, I want to quickly but thoroughly give you the context of this book and passage. Ephesians 1, that Christ is victorious above all. He's the head and he's given himself to the church. That is, the called out believers who have been saved according to God's plan and pleasure. How are they saved? That's Ephesians 2. God, who's full of mercy and love, gave them every gift that's needed for salvation to be accomplished. He graces them with faith. And so every victory of Christ is now given to them. Christ was raised up and he drags the saints with him. They receive all the benefits. They are a new creation. And now they are a new people and he has the right to use them for his purposes because he's remade them. They are his workmanship. And now they get to do all the good works that God prepared for them. But the problem is, Every now and then, the people who have been saved by the victory of Christ, they don't get along, which means they misunderstand or they forget their purpose, right? The Jews and Gentiles of Ephesus, a melting pot of a pagan city, had a church with a different, lots of people from different backgrounds, and this resulted in some division. Paul reminds this church in verse 19 of chapter 2, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, are of God's household. That means Jew and Gentile, man and woman, rich and poor, smart and not so smart, mature and immature, you're all one family. You're all part of God's house. And now you have to understand, for the Jews, this is baffling. The children of Abraham, a promised nation, the promise for uh, a land and a blessing, now have to scoot over and make room for the pagans. Why? Look at 
verse 3, 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What a powerful gospel. The gospel transforms and transplants. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, takes all sinful individuals, no matter their background, and makes them not only new people, but one people. And that one people is the church. Jesus came all the way down from heaven, died for sinners, died for evil people, conquered sin and death, unleashed the Holy Spirit, and transforms all people so that the church can exist. His victory results in what? The church. Okay, so Sunday morning, good morning, you are at church. (laughs) You got ready for church? You're sitting in church? This is the gathering of Christ's followers? Why? Why did you come to church today? Why are you here? Do you have an answer? Maybe you're here because you want to grow in your knowledge. You want want to be encouraged in your faith. But church is not about you. Maybe you want to learn and hear from the Bible, and that's good. But church is not about you. Maybe you want to see family and friends and fellowship, and that's good. But church is not about you. You. Maybe, maybe you don't know why you're here. You have no clue why you're here. That's not good. But church still is not about you. I'm a church planter. I'm a pastor. I'm a missionary. Why? Why plant churches? Why support church planting? Is the goal of the church just to create loving communities all around the world? Is the goal of the church to make churches If Jesus died and rose and conquered and is victorious so that the church can exist, then you must be able to understand why. Why does the church exist? What is the point? Why does the church exist? And for this, we have an answer from the Lord through the Apostle Paul. Our passage today is Ephesians 3, 8 to 10. Just three verses. We're going to look at verse 8 to 9 rather quickly, and then we're going to park at verse 10. Let me read Ephesians 3, 8 and 9. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ, to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. Paul humbly expresses his ministry. It is to reveal a mystery. All now are transformed and transported into the family of God. They are the church. This was not known, right? This was hidden. This was a mystery at one point. But now it is revealed. You know, I see this time, or a trend all the time on social media. We don't do this in Albania, but they're gender reveal parties. You know, that's like a thing that happens a lot here Basically what happens, family, friends, they gather and watch this moment when a couple are going to find out the gender of their baby. And it's always pink or blue. That's the only two options. And people, you know, used to use an envelope, but now they cut a cake or pop a balloon or throw paint, fireworks, and it's always pink or blue. And everyone screams and it's happy and then they put a video up and then you scream and you're happy and the baby's revealed. And now we know what we can buy, right? 
Before we didn't know, but now we know. Before the big reveal. But there is someone that knew the secret before the party, right? They're the person that put the blue frosting in the cake, or they put the pink smoke bomb in the box, or blue missiles in the tank, I don't know. Someone knew the gender. Someone set up the big reveal. It was a mystery to everyone, but that one person. And the mystery, which Paul is mentioning, is a secret. It's God's secret. His divine secret. A divine mystery. Lots of things God has always made known, right? Lots of things only God knows, but some things God reveals with time. And Paul had this special, amazing privilege of opening the box, exploding the balloons, launching fireworks, the big reveal. But rather than pink or blue, the big reveal is that the blessing promised long ago for all nations has come. Not that all people now need to become Jews. Rather, all nations and Jews now become one new person. Gentile, Jew, man and woman, rich, poor, American, Albanian, every age, race, every nation can be saved by the victory of Christ. Big reveal. Unfathomable riches for Jew and Gentile. Christ is victorious. He is the conquering victor. He is triumphant. And you now get to be in his parade. His victory is your victory. And you all, that is plural, you together, you corporately, are now one in Christ. Big reveal. Hidden for ages by God who made all things. That is the mystery Paul's talking about. The big reveal party of God. Every age, race, nation become one. No one knew. It was a mystery. So why did God do this? Why did God send his son to save all nations and bring them into unfathomable riches of Christ, which is called the church? Why did God make the church? What's the purpose? Why does the church exist? And so now let's read verse 10. And we're going to park here today. Ephesians 3.10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. There it is. That's the purpose of the church. Now let's break it down. I believe there are three clear aspects of the church's ultimate and cosmic purpose. One purpose and one goal and one cosmic purpose, but there are three facets, three aspects. How do we know this is a statement of purpose? It begins with the word, so that, or in order that, or King James' version is so good, to the intent that. All of these express purpose and intention. And the purpose and intention of the church in this verse, and this is our first aspect of the church's cosmic purpose, the church reveals God's saving plan. The church reveals God's saving plan. Paul states, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. What was known, I'm sorry, what was not known can now be known through the church. The church, by its very existence, is a testimony of what? Paul says, the manifold wisdom of God. Now, manifold is not a word you use. You would never use the word manifold, right? I dare you to use it today. Please let me know how it goes. Some of you grew up like me. Uh, we 
grew up eating seven-layer dip. Remember that, right? Have you ever had tried manifold dip, right? That was my attempt. It didn't work. Um, it's a word that means rich and deep and colorful. Manifold is a word found in the Bible, but only in this verse. It expresses immeasurable richness of a singular thing. He doesn't say the manifold wisdoms or the various wisdoms of God. Rather, it's the manifold wisdom, singular. This singular wisdom has layers and layers and layers of richness and beauty. You have heard this word before. When Joseph was given one coat with many colors. One coat with manifold colors, layers and layers of beauty. Every thread purposefully and intricately placed, creating a beautiful design. His coat had many colors. It was full and rich. No wonder his brothers threw a fit. The manifold wisdom belongs to God. He possesses it. He's the source of it. And so what is our first aspect of the church? What is our cosmic purpose? The church reveals God's saving plan. What does that mean? Every thread woven in order to create a plan of salvation for all people. The church's very existence reveals God's plan. The plan for the church was before creation. He chose and predestined the church He redeemed and adopted the church. He sealed the church. And all of those actions of God are threads of his manifold wisdom. It was hidden, and now it can be revealed. It can be displayed, it can be shown through the church. That means the church exposes and shines a light on God's great plan. The church's very existence, it's it's proof, it's evidence It's factual, concrete, and undeniable testimony of God's rich, beautiful, layered plan. It was hidden, and now it's revealed. You have to look at the verse and notice, he doesn't say that through the church the manifold wisdom of God is known, or that the manifold wisdom of God was known or will later be known. He says, rather, it might be known. What does that mean? It means God's great saving plan is evident right now. And that's climatic, isn't it? In this very moment, right now, God is on display through the church. All of God's manifold wisdom and plan of salvation can be presently seen. But it can also not be seen. Which is why he later calls the church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It's why he calls the church to be unified. He calls the church to put off evil deeds, to walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. Act like the adopted, redeemed, forgiven, sealed body of Christ. And if the church walks worthy, the wisdom of God is then made known in this present moment, not later in heaven and in glory, but right now. The cosmic victory parade of Jesus is on. It's marching presently. And the church marches behind Christ as a testimony to all he has done. The church is the proof that God is infinitely and manifoldly a saving, gracious, forgiving, perfectly loving, good God. To who? Who needs to see this? Who is receiving the revelation of God's saving plan through the church? Who is watching the parade? 
Who is this revealed to? Look again at verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities. Rulers and authorities. This isn't one person. This is a revelation to many persons. Persons who have position and power. And we learned that the church reveals God's saving plan. But our second aspect of the church and its cosmic purpose is the church announces Christ's great victory. The church announces Christ's great victory. We need to understand who are these rulers and authorities. This is not the first reference to these rulers and authorities in Ephesians. Ephesians 1.20, referring to Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. What do we learn? These rulers and authorities have been conquered by Christ. I'll read another reference you know well, Ephesians 6.12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. The book of Ephesians refers to rulers and authorities three times. But Paul refers to powers and authorities many times. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, and when he has abolished all rule and all power and all authority. Colossians 2.15, when he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. His victory causes rulers and authorities to drop their weapons. They're disarmed, and his triumph is continuous. Over and over is on display. He has triumphed over them, he is triumphing, and he will continue to triumph. The apostles made something really clear to us. Christ's victory was over rulers and authorities. And these rulers and authorities are not in this realm. In the creation of God, he made the physical and the spiritual, right? And there's an order to it. Uh, For example, a rock is physical. There is no life to it. A plant is physical and alive, but it does not have the breath of life. An animal is physical and has the breath of life, but it is not made in the image of God, and so they're not spiritual, which means that goldfish is gone. Man is physical. Man has the breath of life, and man is made in the image of God, and so man is spiritual being. He is physical and spiritual, and angels are not physical. They're not made in the image of God, but they are spiritual. So they're different than us. They are real. And they're watching. That saving plan, which the church reveals, is to powers and authorities. 1 Peter 1.10 says, Concerning this salvation, the saving plan, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you in things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels long to see. Why would an angel desire to look into salvation? Isn't that a weird thought? 
They want to see. They desire salvation. And God wanted his people to always know they're watching. God's law, let's go back, which was filled with instructions, came to Moses and he was instructed to build a tabernacle. And at the center of the tabernacle was the holy place. And inside of the holy place was the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies was what? The Ark of the Covenant. And God instructed Moses to make a cover for this box. And it was to be two angels made of gold. Cherubim. Exodus 25.20 says, The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be down toward the mercy seat. Their heads were turned down. As in looking down, spiritual beings who look down, they are watching and they have always been watching. People always say, an angel was watching out for me. An angel was by my side. Now, what we know, they are watching, but they're not watching you. Not you. Rather, the unfolding of God's what? Manifold wisdom. The Bible says there are angels who praise God, angels who declare Him holy, the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And one day, these angels who watch will praise and worship. All heaven will be filled with angels declaring the marriage of Christ and His bride. That is the day when the church, the bride of Christ, is fully glorified and brought into eternity with Christ. On that day, angels will praise God because his manifold wisdom was made known. All his promises true. All his choices were right. All his will fulfilled. And they watched the whole thing. The whole wisdom of God unfolded. From the very beginning to the end, they witnessed all of it. But the spiritual rulers and authorities of Ephesians are not just these angels. There are also angels who do not praise God. The Bible refers to them as demons or unclean spirits, evil spirits, spiritual beings who long ago were cast out of heaven. Crazy, right? Revelation 12, 9. This is a scary verse. And the great dragon who was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Not all angels are good. Not all praise God. These spiritual beings are in line with Satan. They're organized. They have rank, but they too are watching. They long to look into this salvation and they can't have it. As a sinner, You have fallen short of God's glory. You have fallen. But Christ raised you up and seated you, and you are part of his body. You have salvation. The angels who fell and were cast out of heaven, no shot of return. Christ did not die for the angels. They cannot be redeemed. They cannot be saved. They do not have salvation. And while they may hate you for your salvation, at the same time, they cannot look away. They must watch the unfolding of God's manifold wisdom, which will lead them to their judgment and damnation. But before that day, you do not wrestle with flesh and blood, right? You wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. You have salvation, and no power or ruler can ever take that away. But they do want to rob the church of every blessing. 
They want to bring the church down. But Christ's church will not fall, right? It cannot. Because He has conquered. And so we are more than conquerors. We are the church and we are a proclamation to the rulers and authorities who rebelled against God long ago that they lose. They're defeated. And God's manifold wisdom wins. The church reveals the saving plan of God. The church announces Christ's great victory. And then let's read this verse one more time. I hope you've memorized it. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Our final objective in the purpose of the church, the cosmic purpose, the church testifies in the spiritual realm. Your Bible may say in the heavenly places. It may say in the heavenlies. Isn't that an interesting choice? He doesn't say to the rulers and authorities in this world. That's what I would think he would say. But in the heavenly places. It's plural. It's more than one place, but it's not this world. What are the heavenlies? What are the heavenly places he's talking about? Paul has actually been building and snowballing this idea the whole book. I mean, let's just look at this. Look at 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 1.20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The heavenly places is where Christ is reigning. 2.6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The heavenly places are where you reign with Christ. And 6.12, we've read this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The heavenly places are where you are currently at war. Did you know that? The heavenlies. What is this? This is the spiritual reality that you currently live in. And will live in forever. We see the word heaven and we immediately think all these passages are about the future and about the eternal state of glory. But it's not. The heavenlies or the heavenly places are referring to your current spiritual reality. Answer me. Do you have all the blessings of God right now? Answer me. Yes. Is Christ seated in authority over all spiritual realms? Yes. Are you, currently, are you currently seated with Christ in victory in the spiritual realm? Yes. Are you fighting spiritual powers and authorities in the spiritual realm? Yes. And so the church testifies in the spiritual realm. There are many realities you live in. You live in a physical reality a psychological reality, virtual reality. Reality now is compromised in some ways because of technology and this compromise of truth. But don't ever be confused and never forget your greatest and truest reality is your spiritual reality. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and now you're made alive, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That is your reality and it's your greatest reality. The spiritual realm refers to your relationship with God, your intimacy with the creator of all things. 
Did you hear what I just said? Your intimacy with the Creator of all things. It refers to your union with Christ who has given you Himself spiritually. It refers to your walk in the Spirit. It refers to your communion through prayer. It refers to every part of your spiritual life which is the main part of your life. And you, and I say you all together, you corporately, as the church, are testifying in the spiritual realm. You corporately impact heaven. You corporately impact the powers that live in the dark realm. What this means, church, is every single time you meet together that you are walking in a worthy manner, a cosmic event happens where God puts Himself on display and all spiritual beings, good and bad, recognize the cosmic victory of our Savior Christ. How does the church proclaim that Christ's victory is real? Well, that's Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. By walking in a manner that is worthy. By putting off deeds of darkness. Walking in light. Walking in wisdom. It's submitting to one another. It's wives who follow their husbands who love them like Christ loved the church. It is children submitting to their father and mother. It's servants submitting to their masters. It is wearing Christ's armor as we wage war against the realm of darkness. That's how we proclaim Christ's cosmic victory. Now when we fail, when we fail to proclaim Christ's cosmic victory, we actually are proclaiming something else. When we fail to walk in a manner that is worthy, we are actually proclaiming His victory wasn't enough. When we continue to walk in darkness, it is declared His victory wasn't sufficient. When we hide the deeds of darkness, it is to declare His victory wasn't transformative. When we are drunk with wine, it is to declare His victory wasn't satisfying. When we divorce, it is to say His victory wasn't enough for His bride. When we rebel against parents and masters, it is to say his victory didn't actually give him all authority. But Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he said that because he was victorious. His victory is our victory. Church, we fail sometimes to live in the victory of Christ. And we forget that we live in a spiritual reality. Don't we fight compartmentalizing our Christian life. But every moment, every single moment of your existence is a spiritual moment where you as a spiritual regenerated saint are connected to God Almighty. And when His saints gather, and when the church gathers, the church reveals God's saving plan, it announces Christ's victory, and it testifies in the spiritual realm. When we gather and are living in a worthy manner according to how He has called us to live, the cosmic victory of Christ is on parade, and the spiritual realm witnesses the manifold wisdom of God. And this church, this church, Summit Bible Church, you are proof you are evidence of God's great wisdom. Right now, heaven and hell are watching. And because of this church, the testimony of God is made known throughout heaven and hell. 
You are part of that. But there are places in the world, nations and cities, towns, where no one is a part of that purpose. No one knows Jesus. Where no one knows the one true God. No one knows what the church is. And that is wrong. Because we, don't we have a purpose? Many. We are called to make disciples of all nations so that what? The great manifold wisdom of God is proclaimed and proven in heaven and hell. The church is the extension of God's power and Christ's victory. And sometimes when we hear of places where Christ is not proclaimed or where the church is failing and crumbling and about to disappear, churches and Christians who need help, do we respond and say, gosh, that sounds hard. What's for lunch? Or do we act? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations when we do not respond to this command from our victorious Savior. We are proclaiming His victory is not worth proclaiming. God called me to plant and establish a church in a small city in a small country. No one's ever heard of Pogredes. <laughs> And yet that's where he put us. Why? So that heaven and hell would tremble at the victory of Christ. So that there would be saints who worship Christ together in the Albanian language. It's Sunday morning. Why did you come to church today? I hope you know. So that heaven and hell would see the victory of Christ in you. His cosmic victory is on parade. And behind him follows the church. Marching in the armor of the victor. It's cosmic. It's epic. It's awesome. And your smoky dust of a life suddenly becomes a display of Christ's victory. As I said in the beginning, church is not about you. You get all the blessings. You get all the benefits. But it's not about you. The church is proof of the cosmic victory of Christ. It's evidence of God's glorious wisdom and plan. So when we pray together, heaven's watching. They're part of that. And hell is trembling. When we sing in one voice in worship, we are proclaiming Christ's victory, and they hear us, and they know it's true. But more than anything, when we trust and obey, When the church acts like the church, the manifold wisdom of God is known. So this week as you go, since you are spiritual people, living in a spiritual realm, my challenge is that you leave today, church, doing spiritual things, cosmic victory things. I mean, let's pray, let's confess Let's encourage, let's love one another, let's be the church. Make plans this week to do something with someone in here that is spiritual. Be part of making Christ's victory known in the heaven, in the heavenlies, in places where no one knows his name. And I want to ask that you pray for our family. We're here in America for two months. We're exhausted (laughs) and we're so thankful for this time that God gives us. Pray for us as we get ready to return. It is hard. It's really hard. 
But as we finish, let me, let me finish with this final thought. Remember the Apostle John, he got this huge glimpse of all of God's revelation. What's going to happen? How it all ends. And in the end, he hears angels singing. And this is what they sing. Hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice. Let us exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The bride of Christ finally presented to Christ, perfected, pure, and holy. And then later, John turns to the angels and he falls on his knees in worship. And the angel rebukes him. John wrote, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed this to me. And he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. The angel said, worship God. Man will worship God because he's been redeemed. Angels worship God because they witnessed God redeem. That's how the parade ends. Angels in worship, man in worship, and God receives all the glory. So let us worship. Make make God great in all you do. Make God worthy in all you do. Make your life worthy to the calling you've received. Let's pray. God, we are so small. We are so small. And yet, in your grand plan of redemption, you pulled us in. And we get to be a part of your victory. We become a testimony of your goodness. I pray that you would help us to live in that reality. We forget. We, we don't act like we're spiritual people. We don't act like we know you. We don't act like every day we're surrendering to you. But make us do that. Help us to be a prepared body of believers, prepared to meet our Savior. And let us never forget that you use the church today to proclaim your glory in all things. Amen.